I don't normally like to start out sermons this casual, but I think we should say it just to get uh, acknowledge the obvious and get it out of the way. This is crazy. This is really crazy. It, it's better than reality TV. Now, because this situation is such a mess, we need to spend a fair amount of time just getting... I'm trying to get this right. Getting a full view of the story and trying to calm the chaos a bit. So... There are some really encouraging bits to this story, and it'd be easy to jump into those immediately, but we need to hold those off until the second part of the sermon. We need to deal with a lot of the mess up front. So like I said, it's better than reality TV, okay? Last week, Jacob was part of a wife swap, right? One he wasn't even aware of. His father-in-law gave him his older daughter as a wife when Jacob thought he was getting the younger daughter. He didn't find out until he woke up the next morning, which also says something about Jacob. But he worked hard for seven years for Rachel, the younger, more beautiful daughter. And he's shocked, rightly shocked, when he wakes up to find Leah in the bed. He argues with Laban, his father-in-law, tells him, but Laban, in a funny way, he says, hang around for another seven years. We'll finish the week celebration for you and Leah, and then I'll give you a Rachel too. Two wives in two weeks. Efficient, right? That section ended with this line. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open throughout this, this sermon and follow along. You'll need to look at verse 30 of chapter 29 here. Verse 30. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served Laban for another seven years. The passage today covers those next seven years. And during those next seven years, Jacob is going to gain two more wives and 12 children. Now, by the end, I grew up watching wrestling. It's terrible, but true. And by the end, there are tag team wives. If it's not working out for one of them to have children, she sends in a partner. But Jacob, he's in the ring by himself. In fact, the passage is really kind of a dark comedy. I, I don't get people who like really enjoy dark comedies. I mean, isn't it that it's dark? I mean, it's, there's something not right about it. But it, it is that. Jacob's in the ring on his own, and he's essentially become a stud. If you look at verse 16 of chapter 30, verse 16... Leah and Rachel make a deal over mandrakes, right? Now, these are supposedly an ancient aphrodisiac, a fertility drug. Leah could have a night with Jacob if she gave these to Rachel, and Rachel because Rachel was barren. Now, evidently, Jacob had stopped sleeping with Leah because of Rachel. Now, whether Rachel forced it, whatever it was, Rachel was angry. And so he, he's evidently stopped sleeping with Leah. So Leah, in exchange for the mandrakes, can get a night with Jacob. So Leah comes out to Jacob as he's coming in from the field. Hard day's work, right? He's working off that seven years for his second wife. She goes out to the field and says, you must come in to me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. Romantic, huh? Come on. It's such a mess. Here's what I think we need to do when we see something like this in the Bible. We need to back up and we need to get a bigger picture. One thing this story is certainly about is marriage. Now, 
Aubrey said this last week, the Bible doesn't always teach things in a propositional or heavy-handed kind of way. Instead, it tells stories. And through stories, it seeks to capture our hearts, our minds, and our imaginations and persuade us to a particular path. And the book of Genesis has been telling a story about marriage from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, the first couple, they were full of innocence and awe in one another's presence. They were made to assist one another in the work of God and to raise up children who would follow after them in doing the work of God. But immediately after the fall, marriage and family life are riddled with trouble. There's the advent of pain and difficult labor for both the husband and the wife. There's the marital strife. And then there's the deep pain of sibling rivalry, even murder. But moving forward, jumping ahead, have you noticed, if you followed along in the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have you noticed how many of these stories have to do with marriage and family life? When we met Abraham, we learned that the one true God was going to make him an incredible leader, a leader on a world stage, and his family would bless the world. But strikingly, when we follow his life, almost every situation we hear about has to do in some way with the everyday life of marriage and family. Twice he tries to disguise his wife as his sister, and twice he's rebuked for it. He takes on his wife's concubine to have children, and he's rebuked for that. When we look at the life of Isaac, one of the first things we learn about Isaac, clear things about his character, is that he prayed for his barren wife. Isaac took up the weight of his wife's suffering when he prayed to God. But then, toward the end of his life, Isaac, having failed to raise his children in the Lord, he went to the brink of ruin It was only because of his wife, his courageous wife, Rebecca, who preserved his dignity and any sense of legacy for Isaac. And so now with Jacob and our story today, what we're learning is about how he lives in relationship to his family, his wives and his children. Because this is critical in the kind of man he will be for the world. The kind of leader he will be. So why does the Bible spend so much time with marriage and family life? Why does the camera seem to zoom in on the characters in their worst private moments? Is it just for suspense? Is it just to keep us interested? No. You see, what the Bible is telling us in a narrative way is that the only way a person can be a blessing to the world is if they know how to be a family. Jacob is eager to become a great man, but he has an incomplete understanding of what it means to be great. The way people learn to be great and to be a blessing to anyone and to the world is within family, within humble, seemingly ordinary, day-in, day-out life of marriage and family. So it is with us, anyone called to be of use in the world. Now, this could get confusing. Our church cares deeply about singles. So we we don't need to get confused about this. I'm not saying everyone is called to marriage and family, to marriage and having children. Not everyone is. 
But even singles are called to a family to be part of a group of people who relate to each other through mutual affection, mutual sacrifice of time and service to each other. You see, singleness, apart from some kind of familial service and relationship and love toward others, is just another form of idolatry, idolatry of the self. The family is the context in which every single person in the world has to learn to be of use to the world. Now, zooming back in on this particular story, what I think we see here is that marriage is less about love and attraction than it is about fruitfulness. Marriage is less about love and attraction than it is about fruitfulness. You remember that Jacob's preference for Rachel was based on her beauty. She's described as more beautiful than any other woman in Genesis up to this point. More beautiful than Rebecca. More beautiful than Sarah. Rachel is a magnificent woman, evidently, in her appearance. But even in the passage where it describes her beauty, there are subtle questions as to whether Rachel was worthy of the preference Jacob gives to her. Is there anything that recommends Rachel besides her beauty? Leah might, in fact, be less beautiful. It says she had soft eyes, and it's not exactly clear what that means. Obviously, she's not as beautiful as Rachel. But could she make a better spouse? This week, we get an answer. You see, both wives are dissatisfied. The one with children wants love. The one with love wants children. The question is, which one of these women will grow in faith. Leah, no doubt, had good reason to complain about her marriage. But still, she goes on this upward journey in faith. We can see this progression in her from the names of her first four children and the way she speaks about them. If you look at the first part, uh, it's verses 32 through 32 through 35, we see the names of Leah's first children. Reuben, the first son. It means see a son. But what Leah says about this is the Lord has seen my misery and perhaps my husband will love me. Immediately, Leah recognizes children as a gift from the Lord. Now, of course, she's broken. Her husband doesn't love her. But then Simeon, her second son, it means to hear. The Lord has heard that I am hated, Leah says. Then Levi. It sounds like the word attached. My husband will be attached to me. Leah, she does. She longs for her husband's attention. What wife doesn't want to know that she's loved and she's seen as beautiful? It's human. But then her fourth son, Judah. It simply means praise. And Leah says about him, I will praise the Lord. You see, from the beginning, Leah hopes in God and she sees these children as gifts of God. Sure, she's broken because of her husband's lack of affection. It's something that would plague any normal human to be deprived of a spouse's affection. But on the arrival of Judah, her faith entirely turns toward the Lord. 
Leah's fruitfulness in bearing children exists parallel to her fruitfulness in faith. As the Lord gives her children, she grows in faith in the Lord. She suffers. She suffers from a lack of attention from her husband, but she still grows in faith in the Lord. By the end of this story, Leah has seven children. It's more children than all the other wives combined. And seven being a biblical number of completeness, it's never used arbitrarily. You see, Leah is, comes as the woman of faith in this story. She leans into her suffering with all its pain and its loneliness. And she seeks God in it. And she bears fruit. Not just children, but faith. What about the beautiful, lovely Rachel? When she recognizes that Leah has outdone her in producing children, she turns to envy. Rachel's character is conveyed in this really careful way in the passage. Will you look at verse 31 with me? Verse 31, the beginning of this section starts with the words, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated. And then what's he do? He displays compassion towards Leah, right? But then look at verse 1 of chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children. Do you see what the passage is doing? It's placing when the Lord sees and when Rachel sees side by side in parallel so that we can see the difference between the way the Lord responds and the way that Rachel responds. How does she respond? She envied her sister. It's a contrast between the Lord and Rachel. When God sees suffering, he overflows with compassion. But when Rachel sees this, she overflows with envy. To the point that her natural maternal desire is twisted into bitterness. There's no mention of sadness, frustration, only envy. Now there are two things we need to keep in mind when we read these things about Rachel. First, it's her first recorded speech in the Bible. The first time we hear anything out of Rachel's mouth. Remember, all we've heard so far is that she's so beautiful. But the first words that a character speaks in narrative Old Testament are usually indicative of that person's character. You're supposed to pay attention to those things. What does it reveal about Rachel's character? Listen to the end of verse 1. Give me children or I shall die. Rachel is impulsive. She's demanding and maybe a bit dramatic. You know who she sounds like? Jacob's brother Esau. Give me that red stew, that stuff that I want, or I will die. But secondly, after all the to-do over Rachel's beauty and Jacob's love for her in the prior passage... This is the only exchange we have between Jacob and Rachel. The lovers, the perfect lovers who found each other. The only exchange we have. And in this instance, Jacob's love is suddenly turned to anger. Now, sure, Rachel isn't the only one at fault here. It sounds like we're being really hard on Rachel. Her barrenness, her suffering. They had the potential to lead Jacob and Rachel into a life of prayer and reliance on God. A type of fruitfulness. Remember, this is exactly what happened in the life of Abraham. And even more in the life of Isaac. Their wives were barren. And they learned to pray. 
It doesn't happen for Jacob and Rachel. So with no prayer offered to God, Rachel's barrenness becomes a symbol of her self-will and her envy, her oppression of Leah. Not fruitfulness. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with all of it? Men, this is so important and it's so easily forgotten. Do you pray for your wife? Do you pray for your wife? Do you, oh, (laughs) amen. Do Do you enter into her suffering and the weight of her struggles and bring them before God? What we're seeing about marriage is this is what really godly men do. They don't just listen and walk away. They listen and they enter into it. Your marriage is much less about attraction and even about love than it is about prayer. It's so simple, but it's so huge. Prayer can transform your marriage. It will transform your marriage. It will transform you. Men, do you, do you pray for your wives? But also, a- attraction is an issue here. You see, attraction became a distraction for Jacob from the real issues of marriage. However much we might be partial to love and to lovers... However much our culture might exalt this as the highest point of a relationship, love of the sort that Jacob felt for Rachel may not be the best foundation for marriage and family. Think about this. Hollywood has the most beautiful people in the country, people who practice falling in love through powerful stories all the time. They should be pretty good at it at this point, right? But what appears to be a 95% divorce rate. Love and attraction aren't doing it. They aren't a foundation for marriage. We really need to be careful about making the physical piece a centerpiece to marriages. And neglecting bigger issues of godliness and character. Teenagers... Don't get sucked into the idea that looks and feelings are the most important parts of choosing a spouse. They'll fail. They will fail. But beyond that, beyond the issues of prayer and attraction, the mere fact that a book like Genesis would come back to marriage again and again should really recommend to us that we need to be reevaluating our own marriages. We need to ask ourselves, what kinds of hopes and expectations are we placing on our marriages and our family? Are we placing the idealistic expectations of culture that will always be in this kind of haze of love and romance? That's not the purpose of marriage in the Bible. The purpose of marriage in the Bible is to serve God. It's to find ways of serving God together. Now, that can be a complicated issue. That's that's a lot to work through and a lot to discern. But the center of marriage should never be just your love or just attraction or even just children. 
We have to filter through these things that culture feeds us and we have to look back to the beginning in this vision that Genesis is continuing to present to us that it's marriage between man and a woman for the sake of serving God. And as couples, we have to do the hard work, the really hard work of praying and figuring out what it means for your family to serve God together. It's not always clear cut. In fact, it can be really messy. And that's why we should own it as hard work. Now, Jacob, he helps us because he tests out two different foundations for marriage. He's got one wife for love and companionship, one wife for children. And yet neither one of them is happy. Again, as I said earlier, the one, the one with love and companionship wants children. The one with children wants love. We have to strive to learn how to serve God in our families. It's gonna, like I said, it's going to take lots of hard work and discernment. And the messiness is just part of finding our way and letting, learning to let God lead us. But, but there's a second issue in this story, one that I think looms large over this moral struggling of the family. The, the issue is the way that God interacts with our pain. It's almost shocking and scandalous the way we find God interacting with this family. The whole narrative is framed with the use of the divine name. Look again at verse uh, 31 of chapter 29. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated. And then verse 24 of chapter 30. Rachel says she called his name Joseph saying, May the Lord add to me another son. The passage is framed with uses of God's name. But also God's name is mentioned seven times in all in this passage. As I said before, seven is never an arbitrary number in the Bible. What the narrator is doing, what the author is doing, is giving a careful way of saying that God is involved throughout this story of chaos and strife. Somehow God is in the midst. And what is God doing in this story? God has compassion on Leah's lack of love. He listens to her prayer and he gives her more children than all the other women combined. And even with stubborn Rachel, at the end of the story, it says God remembers her. Rachel had tried everything she could. She tried a servant. She tried this supposed ancient fertility method. But in the end, even Rachel sees that children are only from the Lord. The Lord is the one who gives children in each of these cases. As messed up as this story is, God is the one who's giving the children. Now, when the Bible says that God remembers something, as it did with Rachel, God remembered Rachel, it means he's about to act on his promise. So despite Rachel's questionable motives, God has mercy on her and he blesses her. And God can do the same thing in our lives. God is present to have mercy on us in the midst of our chaos and our mixed motives. We don't need to be scared to pray. Look, Rachel is shown to be a woman without much faith and without much integrity. Yet it says, the Lord listened to her. 
Are you struggling? Are you feeling guilt and you don't even know how to pray? Just pray. Ask God. God wants to meet us in the midst of our junk. But there's still a warning here. God has mercy on Rachel, but her life is still diminished by her lack of fruitfulness in faith. Did you notice that ending when, it, when she named Joseph? Joseph's mean, name means, may the Lord add to me another son. Now, it sounds great because she uses the Lord's name. But there's a sense that envy is still alive and well inside of Rachel. What is Rachel wanting? It's not just praise, I got a son, I'm happy. It's, no, I want another son. Remember, she's envious of Leah. She wants more. And do you remember what she said to uh, Jacob? Give me children or I shall die. Ironically and sadly, Rachel dies in childbirth. Away from the promised land. When Jacob returns to his father's land with the wife that he was to go get, guess who the wife is? It's Leah. God has mercy on Rachel, but Rachel hasn't responded to the suffering that God has given to her that could have cultivated in her faith and trust in the Lord. Instead, she's remained envious. And what the narrative seems to tell us is that Rachel is discarded because of that. She's pushed aside. God is so merciful. But are you responding to the suffering that he's putting in your life in such a way that you're developing faith and trust in him? I think that's the challenge. Surprisingly, it's through the not-so-beautiful Leah who bears the most fruit in children and in faith, who's the woman of faith. From her comes Judah, the son Judah. And from Judah comes Jesus. Jesus is the one who came to have compassion and to rescue a lot of not-so-beautiful brides, just like Leah. It's in the compassionate love of Jesus. The painting on the front is called The Tears of Christ. The Tears of Christ. And it's so fitting. Because this is how Christ responds to our suffering. He bears it. He bears it before God. And it's in the compassionate love of Jesus, the tears of Christ, that God interacts with and bears our own pain. Do you feel like Leah? Do you feel unloved? Will you find your hope in the Lord? Are you suffering? Will you enter into it and let the Lord grow you in faith? And for your marriage, will you seek to serve the Lord? With your lack of children or with your many children, will you seek to serve the Lord? Let's pray.